again, everybody. Welcome to episode 84 of the Arizona Bird Call, an ongoing series of podcasts about Arizona birds. I'm longtime Arizona birder Mike Amy. In this week's episode, a few more thoughts about how to prepare nest boxes for the coming songbird nesting season. We have reported before on efforts by numerous volunteer organizations to provide nest boxes for bluebirds, purple martins, tree swallows, and other desirable species here in Arizona. And today we'll have a look at how well-intentioned tampering with nest boxes in efforts to help birds can go awry. And we'll have a recent update on the legendary Thrasher's spot west of Phoenix. Our Arizona Bird of the Week is the Bush Tit, Birding Hotspot, the Mule Deer Mountains. A friend of wildlife organization is the Merriam Powell Research Station at Northern Arizona University. And we'll have our calendar of bird-friendly events coming up in Arizona. In a recent episode of Arizona Bird Call, I brought you a very useful article by Mary Williams at the White Mountain Audubon Society about preparing nest boxes for the spring nesting season. And one of the things it occurred to me that I needed to add that I did not, that was not in Mary's description, although it is thorough and very interesting, is that in another life, I was a bluebird box monitor for Cornell Lab of Ornithology in the Finger Lakes National Forest. Kind of a misnomer because it originated as the Hector Land Use Area, an artifact of a time when farming in the Finger Lakes area had uh, resulted in the destruction, if you will, of the very thin top layer of soil. After the American Revolution, Veterans of that war were awarded one-mile square plots of land, and they went about the process of clear-cutting them and establishing farms there. In fact, it's kind of a fascinating thing. If you look at satellite maps of upstate New York, you can see in very fine detail the delineation of those one-mile blocks because the roads that separate those blocks are many of them unpaved, and I traveled those as I went around checking out the bluebird boxes. There were about 50 of them at the time. And the farms were eventually abandoned and taken over by the state of New York and then eventually by National Forest System. And while there is a lot of really great forest on that property, much of it is grassland and is leased to beef cattle ranchers at this time. And so it's a great spot for mounting bluebird nest boxes because bluebirds need a kind of a beeline shot from overhead telephone wires, trees, other perches, where they can get a clear shot right into the nest box hole. So it's an ideal setting for bluebirds, and eastern bluebirds flock to those nesting boxes each season. So I would go to observe what was in the boxes, and occasionally I would find some that were occupied by dead tree swallows, sometimes dead bluebirds. And uh, at one point, after discovering a couple of boxes that that seemed to be a particular problem. I stopped in at the ranger station, dropped off my survey sheets, and asked about it. And he said, oh, yes, the person who was the bluebird monitor before you came aboard 
Notice that there were bees in some of the boxes, and she sprayed the inside of the boxes with wasp spray. And so my point in telling you this story is, uh, please don't do that. Birds are perfectly capable of keeping wasps out of boxes where they are nesting. They probably devour the bees in the process of establishing their nests. And so what the Bluebird Monitor was seeing when she opened those boxes was the remnants of bees' nests, not active ones. And so the insecticide that she was using was apparently killing those birds when they would perch overnight and they just would not come out of their slumber. So stick to what Mary indicated, that you need to use a bare wood. And it is possible that birds will establish nests in boxes that are lacquered or painted or and, and, and that have plywood bases, but chances are they won't because the glues and other materials used in creating plywood will drive them off. And there were plenty of empty boxes that I would encounter from time to time, but the ones that were successful tended to have repeat occupancy and perhaps by the same birds. Lots of information online that tells you how to build and mount nesting boxes, and please stick to the tried and true Thanks again, Mary, for that great uh, description of how here in Arizona we ought to prepare our nest boxes. Here's a Thrasher Spot update that was posted by the Maricopa Audubon Society in February of 2022, so that's a bit over a year ago. It reads, Maricopa Audubon Society volunteers joined two field biologists to survey thrasher populations near the thrasher spot west of Phoenix. Teams of three, a field biologist and two volunteers, spent the morning spread out and moving through the desert terrain to see or often hear the thrashers. First Solar Corporation proposes to build a solar farm on 3,200 acres of mostly state trust land that include the Thrasher Spot at Baseline and Salome Road. Four species of thrashers can be found there, and Ben Dyers and Leconce thrashers nest in the area. Birders come from across the country to get their first Leconce thrashers here. Maricopa County Planning and Zoning Board approved the changes and zoning necessary for the solar project to proceed last summer. Construction of the solar farm has not begun. February 1st through the 3rd survey revealed that thrashers still inhabit the area. All four species were seen, although the mix shifted from the similar survey MAS conducted in 2021. In 2021, Ben Dyer's thrashers significantly outnumbered Leconte's. This year's survey found roughly similar numbers of both sage and crystal thrashers were also seen, though in smaller numbers. The 2021 and 2022 survey will be used to furnish the before data in a before and after assessment completed after the solar farm is up and running. MAS has requested information from the State Land Department concerning their negotiations to lease or sell the tract has not yet heard back. And again, this is a report that was posted about a year ago by the Maricopa Audubon Society, and there's video of Leconte's thrashers from the Thrasher Spot surveys at Lori Nessel's YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and you use Lori Nessel, that's L-A-U-R-I-E-N-E-S-S-E-L, 
and I assume LeConte's thrashers as search terms. You should be able to get there. There are two videos, according to Maricopa Audubon Society's website, so you should find both of them with those search terms. It's time now for our bird of the episode, the American bush tit. And the reason we call it the American bush tit is because there are many species of bush tit. And the American bush tit is the only one that is found in North America, here in the New World. It's referred to simply as bush tit, actually, when you see it on bird lists and in bird guides about Arizona. The bird sound you just heard is from the Macaulay Library of Animal Sounds at Cornell University's Lab of Ornithology, and this description is from Wikipedia, the free online encyclopedia. The American bush tit was formally described by the American naturalist John Kirk Townsend in 1837, and given the binomial name Parus minimus. Townsend noted that the species inhabited the forests of the Columbia River over in Washington, Oregon. It is now the only species placed in the genus Salter Paris that was introduced in 1850 by the French naturalist Charles Lucien Bonaparte. The genus name combines the genus Saltria that was introduced by Conrad Termek in 1836 for the pygmy bush tit, with Paris that was introduced by Carl Linnaeus in 1758 for the tits. The American bush tit inhabits mixed open woodlands, often containing oaks and a scrubby chaparral understory. It's also inhabiting parks and gardens here in Arizona. It is a year-round resident of the western United States and highlands part of Mexico, ranging from Vancouver through the Great Basin and the lowlands and foothills of California, southern Mexico, and Guatemala. American bush tit is one of the smallest passerines in North America. Uh, in weight, it's about uh, 5 to 6 grams. It's gray-brown overall with a large head, a short neck, and a long tail and short stubby bill. Bush tits are sexually dimorphic. The male has dark brown to black eyes and the adult female yellow eyes. Coastal forms have a brown cap, while those in the interior have a brown mask. The subspecies can be identified by the dark ear patch or auricular this polymorphism does not occur in the northern part of the American bush tit range, but is first noted near the Mexican border, primarily in Texas. Most individuals with the black ear patch in the area are juvenile males, and none are adult females. Some have only one or two dark lines on the face instead of a complete patch. The black-eared form becomes more common southward in the northeastern, but not the northwestern highlands of Mexico until from central Mexico south all males have a complete black ear patch and even adult females have a black arc over the eye and usually a black line through the eye. 
The American bush tit is active and gregarious, foraging for small insects and spiders in mixed-species feeding flocks containing species such as chickadees and warblers of 10 to over 40 individuals. Members of the group constantly make contact calls to each other that can be described as a short spit. This species produces an elaborate pendant nest of moss and lichen assembled with spider silk and lined with feathers. It's something to see, and if you see one here in Arizona, you should consider yourself kind of lucky. The American Bush Tet, our bird of the episode. Birding hotspot for this episode is down in southeastern Arizona. It's the Mule Mountains. Dividing the San Pedro and Sulphur Springs Valleys is this small Sky Island mountain range, the Mule Mountains, though often overlooked by birders due to a lack of easy access to public lands. The mules are definitely worth a stop if you can get there. Bisbee, a turn-of-the-century copper boomtown turned artist colony, lies sprawled over the southern end of the mountains. Victorian architecture, historic hotels, bed-and-breakfast inns, fine dining, and a variety of shops and galleries are among the many delights of this charming stop. Local residents are particularly proud of the large flock of turkey vultures that roosts in large cottonwood trees up Tombstone Canyon from the historic district. The vultures are sometimes joined by a zone-tailed hawk. Watch for Mexican jays, acorn woodpeckers, and white-winged doves crossing the upper parts of the Tombstone Canyon Road, which is continuous with Main Street. A few of the lodging establishments in this neighborhood maintain hummingbird feeders, Canyon wrens and black-chinned sparrows nest on many of the rocky slopes that surround the historic district, including Zacatecas Canyon. The narrow dirt road begins at the end of infamous Brewery Gulch to that canyon, and rock wrens are commonly seen further south along the southern edge of the quote-unquote scenic lavender pit. Short walk around historic Old Bisbee in late summer may turn up Two dozen species of butterflies, plus a common uh, bird selection, barn swallows, house finches, white-winged doves, lesser goldfinch, turkey vulture. South of the traffic circle in the Warren District, you'll find Vista Park, a long linear park modeled after the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The park is bordered by a stately mansion and not-so-scenic ore dump at the top end the nation's oldest baseball field at the bottom, and homes on both sides. The oasis has attracted some odd birds, including red crossbills and Lewis's woodpecker. In winter, fruiting shrubs may attract cedar waxwings, American robins, hermit thrushes, and northern mockingbirds. To reach the park, take the Bisbee Road exit off the traffic circle, turn left just past the ore dump, and right on West Vista or East Vista, Galena Park on Highway 92 at the first traffic signal past the traffic circle is a scrap of natural desert with walking trails and other amenities, a good spot to find a few common desert species such as cactus wren, verdant, curve-billed thrasher, pyrolaxia, and 
black-throated sparrow. So next time you're down in the Bisbee area, make sure you get your birding in there at the Mule Mountains, our birding hotspot for this episode. friend of wildlife organization for this episode is the Miriam Powell Research Station at Northern Arizona University. Here's what they have to say about themselves at in.nau.edu. The Miriam Powell Research Station supports research, education, and collaboration. Located five miles from Flagstaff, the research station offers affordable housing and research facilities to scientists and students conducting field work. Our facilities are also available to educational, scientific, nonprofit, and governmental organizations for day long or multi day meetings and workshops. The research station is open from March 15th to November 1st. Winter reservations are possible by special arrangement. As for housing, they have two bunk rooms and a two-bedroom apartment provided housing to individuals or groups of up to 20 people in the main building. From May 1st to September 30th, two platform tents that can each comfortably accommodate four guests are also available by special arrangement. Amenities for overnight guests include wireless internet, a full basic kitchen and grill and laundry facilities, A pillow and light blanket are provided, and linens and towels are available for an additional fee. They also have a meeting room that can comfortably accommodate 30 people, and as many as 40 people if needed. Included in the rental price is the use of wireless internet. Wired connections are also available, projector and screen, whiteboards, and access to a full basic kitchen. MPRS facilities are available for day-long and overnight retreats, workshops, meetings, and because it's slightly off the beaten path in a beautiful setting, it's a perfect place for a meeting. There's lots more information at the website as to fees and so forth. It sounds like a great place to have a meeting. I have lived in platform tents over the course of full summers in the past, and I can tell you it's a very pleasant way to spend time if you want to be out in nature, and uh, it's more accommodating than maybe you might anticipate if you've not had that experience. Mine was up in the Adirondacks in northern New York State, but uh, here in Arizona, in that region around Flagstaff, the landscape is similar, just drop-dead gorgeous. Here's more information. The research and mentoring for post-baccalaureate program at Northern Arizona University seeks to advance indigenous perspectives to address climate vulnerability in the Southwest through research training for and by diverse communities. The RAMP program is an intensive year-long research experience designed to train and connect recent college graduates, particularly indigenous and Latinx participants, with research careers supporting improved ecosystem health within their own communities. Northern Arizona University's program is funded by the National Science Foundation's Research and Mentoring for Post-Baccalaureates in Biological Sciences. RAMP scholars are selected based on their interest in a career in biology or natural resource management, limited opportunity for participation in research, post-degree, technical training, or other educational opportunities. Limitations could be the result of many factors, including attendance at a tribal or community college, finances, health, family, geographic location, 
or the COVID pandemic. Thirdly, alignment of participant interests with research themes and the expertise of mentors. And fourthly, overall academic potential. Our AMP scholars work closely with mentors to design and implement research projects focused on helping to mitigate or prevent the damaging effects of climate change on southwestern landscapes. Our long-term goal is to help make a diverse and skilled workforce capable of responding to the unique regional challenges in climate and resources. Research projects are co-produced by science faculty, indigenous leaders, land managers, and fellows. The program aims to prepare participants for jobs or additional graduate education in these areas. And here's what's offered. $37,000 one-year stipend to cover living expenses, NAU group health insurance for a single person, a laptop budget, and travel expenses for field research, conferences, and workshops. The program kicks off with a three-day retreat and orientation program at the nearby Merriam Powell Research Station, located in the Coconino National Forest, five miles from campus. At the retreat, participants create an individual plan to develop their scientific identities over the course of the next year while getting to know other program participants, mentors, and staff. There's a lot more information at the NAU website about this program and lots of other ones, too. And it's always great to see undergraduates having an opportunity to continue their educational experiences in a research environment. And that's our Friend of Wildlife organization for this episode, the Miriam Powell Research Station at Northern Arizona University. And the Sonoran Audubon Society has this to put on your calendar. It's the annual Spring Picnic and Bird Walk at Horseshoe Ranch, Saturday, April 2nd, 2022, from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. This popular brown bag and bird walking event will take place on the lovely campus of the Horseshoe Ranch Complex. It's an inholding in the Agua Fria National Monument, owned by the AZ Game and Fish Department. Ranch is about 65 miles north of the Phoenix Metro. Please RSVP to Donna at rms15247 at cox.net. That's rms15247 at cox.net. The chapter provides coffee and breakfast munchies for lunch. Bring your own brown bag, water, and your own drinks. Your bird walk guides will be Bob McCormick, or McBob as he's better known, and Jim Consoloy. They plan to lead small groups to the Upper Agua Fria River Important Bird Area and Silver Creek. And just around the ranch, birding spots. Best to bring a lawn chair, bring your cameras, bring your binoculars. Some of the best bird sightings have been made from the chairs in the big sit. It's easy to get to Horseshoe Ranch. Drive north toward Flagstaff on Route 17 out of Phoenix to the Bloody Basin Road, exit 259 about 50 to 60 miles from Phoenix, then drive east on Bloody Basin Road for six miles. The dirt road is okay for regular cars. I've been there, both of those, over the last couple of years, those uh, big sits there at the ranch. Easy to go in there. You just have to take your time. As you come over the rise at about mile six, you'll see the upper Agua Fria River, big trees below in the valley, and you'll see the ranch complex across the river. 
You will have to drive over the stream. Sometimes it has water in it, sometimes it does not. It's always kind of rocky, so take your time. You can park in the ranch yard, you just follow the uh, crowd. Tucson Audubon has this on the calendar for Monday, March 14th from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., a virtual presentation. Invite pollinators to your yard. Presenter is Kim Matsushino. You need to register for the event at the Tucson Audubon Society website. It is free. Southeast Arizona is buzzing with pollinators with over 1,200 native bee species, the second highest number of butterfly species in the United States. Arizona is truly a hot spot for pollinators. Join us for our third installment in the Bringing Birds Home Recipe Card presentations as we discuss all things pollinator. In the presentation, we will explore some of our native bee, butterfly, and moth species commonly found in southeast Arizona and talk about how to safely and sustainably invite them into our outdoor spaces. White Mountain Audubon Society has this on their calendar. It's just a statement. We resume our monthly programs this coming April, and for 2022, we expect that all monthly programs will continue to start at 6.30 p.m. on the first Wednesday of the month, and excepting January, February, and March when there are no meetings. And as we mentioned last week, our monthly program meeting site has changed in 2022, so remember to come to the new meeting site at Buffalo Bill's Tavern and Grill at 1 North Bison Preserve Way in Sholo. Programs are free and open to all. For more information, call Liz Jernigan at 928-532-1511. Also on the calendar, White Mountain Audubon Society is a March 19th birding field trip. Monthly bird-watching field trips are held on the third Saturday of every month for the second year, including the winter months. If you're interested in attending this one, feel free to give Rob a call at 928-368-8481. Leave a message so that he can return your call, give you the details for the upcoming trip. And the Yuma Audubon Society continues its Wednesday bird walks every Wednesday morning. And that's at the Wetlands Park. No experience necessary. Meet at 8 o'clock in the parking lot. That's the Yuma East Wetlands. And look for the birders with their binoculars. Well, that's our podcast for this week. Thank you for downloading the Arizona Bird Call. I'm longtime Arizona birder Mike Amy. You can connect with me at ArizonaBirdCall at gmail.com. You can also add this podcast to your RSS feed. A new episode is available each Wednesday. Arizona Bird Call is free. There is no subscription fee. We pay for this on our own dime. If you'd like to support bird conservation and protection in Arizona, please contribute to your local bird club. And most importantly, participate in its activities. You'll meet other birders, build your own birding skills, and by your participation, encourage others to get involved as well. Thanks again, and happy birding, everyone.